and welcome to another Scotsway podcast. And today I'm joined by writer D.D. Johnson to talk all about his book for people watching the video, Disneyland. Hello, D.D. Hey there, thank you very much for having me on. Oh, it's a pleasure. I can't wait to talk to you about it because I really enjoyed uh, the book. How do you describe Disneyland to people when they ask what it's about? It's a really happy story about the end of the world. Um, it's a... Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> It's, it's putting the fun back into the apocalypse, you know. It's uh, it's had a bad rap recently, uh, and this is a, it's meant to. Uh, there's there's some some bleak times in it, but it's meant to be uplifting. And yeah, and it ultimately is. So when did you start to write it, and uh, and did it change as the world changed? Because as you say, it's got a kind of apocalyptic tone to it. But in the last few years, that's been a bit too close to the bone, maybe for comfort. <laughs> it, it has been. It's. Um, I, it was about a decade ago that right. I realised that there was something strange in our culture where we seem to be overwhelmed with novels and films and what have you all about the end of the world. And I thought if there's some future civilization looks back at our time, then what they'll find uh, hard to fathom is that we so relentlessly predicted the collapse of our civilization and yet did so little about it. And I knew that I wanted to do something about that. And I was just stuck for years and years. Um, and it was at, the turning point was in uh, it was February 2020. And me and my, my then partner, we were down on a train. This was down in the, uh, the south of England. Um, and she was pregnant at the time. And there was nowhere to sit. And I looked down the, the, the carriage and everybody was oblivious. And we were all on their phones. Um, and it was the weekend of, of um, Storm Dennis. And it was, the land was still flooded for um, Storm uh, Kira. That was like the wettest February on record and all this. And we're on this train and everyone's on their phones and it just seemed miserable. And there was all the, the, the robot voice warning us, you know, something doesn't look right. And the CCTV. And I thought, this is how 20th century science fiction writers, this is how they imagined a future dystopia. Yeah. And I thought that the, the, the story I was going to write wasn't going to be about how we might fall into a dystopia. It was going to be about how we might get out of the dystopia we're in. It's interesting you're talking about uh, um, kind of science fiction. I hadn't really thought of it as science fiction as such, but it's, it's, it's interesting how that world has changed from kind of post-war being quite a kind of positive thing that the future's going to be you know something quite positive and helpful to being the absolute opposite of that and I suppose Disneyland kind of shows you the aftermath of, of that situation. It, it, it is I, I mean I, I think that there are, there's there's very little optimistic science fiction out there um, and what there is you know maybe um, some of a, the, the Ian M. Banks stuff you'll know a great deal more about uh, that than I do, or, or Kim Stanley Robinson or something, you know, they maybe find high technology solutions for the future. Yeah. Um, and I didn't even drive, I'm a bit of a Luddite in that way. So, so I, I, I don't, those they could seem quite dystopian to me, um, to me as well. And, uh, and Disneyland's more about, well, do we have to keep going the direction mm-hmm. we're going or can we, can we stop? Yeah, or are we or are we made to stop? Are we made to stop? Right? Yeah, yeah, because we shouldn't make like you know um, make people think that it's kind of sci- it's sci-fi. It's very relatable. It's very much set in 
Well, this world, but another world as well. Maybe you should talk a little bit about the um, kind of what influenced uh, Disneyland in terms of other books. Were there, were there things that you thought, yeah, I'd like to kind of do something similar to this? It, they're probably, I mean, there, there are a few, um, you know, interesting post-apocalyptic books out there, but an awful lot of them tend to follow a formula. Mm -hmm. where, uh, broadly speaking, the telly goes off and, you know, the next minute everyone turns to cannibalism. It, it's, uh, it's quite a bleak outlook. Um, and, and that's something, that's a message that goes through our literary culture mm -hmm. uh, in all sorts of ways. You know, you, you think about books like um, uh, Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness mm -hmm. or um, Lord of the Flies. Oh, it's messages that the, there's a beast inside us all. And, in the absence of authority, uh, we're going to turn to a to a state of savagery. It's essentially a sort of um, the the ideas of Thomas Hobbes. And there are a few, um, you know, in 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 Scotland, I think um, uh, Jenny Fagan's uh, "The Sunlight Pilgrims." Mm -hmm. uh, that's a, a you know interesting um, book. Uh, Ewan Morrison did a book. Um, uh, Names off time, but last year that that is a you know again quite an interesting response to um to the end of the world. I think um was that the how to survive? That's the one. Fantastic, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Again, uh, interestingly enough, I, I I read it and thought this is about COVID and stuff. But he'd started. It's amazing uh, how many books that like, a bit like your own you think oh this is a direct relation to the last few years, and it really isn't. It started long before that. I uh, I. Uh, um, I, so, so, so Emily St. John Randall's Station Eleven. That's another one where you know it's quite it's bleak, but there's also a lot of um, tenderness and humanity um, as well. And that's one of the things about the, you, you mentioned COVID there. Um, during that, that first lockdown, you know, we were all outside on our Thursday nights and singing together on neighbours we didn't really talk to each other very much not normally but suddenly we were all checking in on each other and that was the the, the experience uh, around the world really um and and that, that encouraged me to think well let's make this book about um about how people can pull together in times of adversity about cooperation and and mutual aid um rather than the 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 popular perception of what will happen when there's a disaster, which is that we'll um, we'll sink into a state of individualistic um, savagery. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, let's talk a little bit about the structure. It's an interesting one. At the beginning, there's a kind of realist opening, and then you talk about hearing the voice for the first time. So what, and, and I think you even talk about the novel itself, you describe it at the end as a prophecy. You know, that kind of thing. So tell us a little bit about those aspects, what you wanted to do there. So the, the, that started with, um, as I say, I've been struggling with this book for a long time. And um, and our, we, we had a wee boy, uh, uh, he, was, he was born in, um, in June 2020, um, just at, uh, you know, at the end of, of lockdown. Um, and it was, a, it was a stressful time. And anybody's got Anybody who's got parents and knows like what those first weeks are like. <laughs> it's exhausting. Um, and um, his mum, you know, it was a really difficult labour and she was recovering and I was trying to look after this wee boy and I was just exhausted. Um, and I started hallucinating 
you know, yeah. just with I'd, I'd, I'd think that I'd fallen asleep holding him. I'd wake up in a panic. And there was one time that I carried him around the bed and I went to put him in his wee basket. And as only as I, I lowered him down, I seen he was already in his basket and there was nothing in my arms at all. Um, and, and at the same time, I started to, like, I started trying to write the book and it was just there, like it was a voice in my, in my head. Um, and, um, you know, it just came up, so, so it was sort of that. And I, and I was really interested in, um, in religious ideas about um, the, the apocalypse. Uh, I got interested a while back in, in you know, these millenarian um, uh, sort of Reformation era radical Christians, you know, guys right. like Thomas Muntzer and Jan Mattis, and, and they, they believed that there was going to be this great uh, reckoning when all the evildoers would be smited. And I, I find that, um, I find that a very comforting thought, you know, I'm not, I'm, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not against that idea. Uh, and, and, and I wanted that to, um, I wanted that to come through in the, in the book as well. And I started to notice that there were all these wee synergies, just like the fact that a newborn baby's basket called a Moses basket. Mm -hmm. And I started to sort of um, play around with that a bit and I experienced having a child at such a sort of, um, it's hard not to sound a wee bit daft saying this, but it's such a profound spiritual sort of, Mm -hmm. sort of thing um and it just came out that way and the idea kind of because it takes us into another world but it's very much a recognizable world yeah and you know the idea of kind of the multiverse or anything like that uh, you know is now very big in popular culture but the idea of possible world theory that kind of philosophical idea has been around for a long time and was that something that you thought yeah in another world, this could be the life that's being lived. I, I, so I, I think I didn't want to sort of propose that this was a, a vision of what would actually happen because I, you know, I didn't think that we we're uh, um, going to reach this sort of societal collapse in two years' time, um, and I, I didn't want to set it far in the future because I've no about that technological imagination. Uh, so, so seeing well, this is a, a similar but different reality was a was a device in that way. But it's also something about, um, I think about my, my distance from Scotland, um, right. that my Scotland's very different from contemporary Scotland. I've been away uh, you know, more than two decades now. Uh, I've now spent, I think I've just reached a point where I've spent more of my life away from Scotland than, than there. Uh, so a lot of sort of my, uh, my idea of Scotland, it actually comes 20 years ago and, and, yeah. and longer. So it was going to, always going to be somewhere that was a wee bit like Scotland, but also quite different. Well, let's talk about place, because place plays a big part in it. And the Scottish town is Dundool. Tell us a little bit about that, because again, it'll be recognisable, but something different. So, so I, I wrote, um, when I wrote my first novel, um, and I started working on that, you know, 15 years ago or something, um, and that's it in, in Dundool. Um, and it's, you know, so long ago, it's hard to mind why I thought a fictional location, but there's a real tradition of that in, in Scottish fiction, isn't there? Like, um, you know, when, 
one of the first sort of proper books I read is when I was at um, when I was at school, uh, and we had to go, we had to write a book review. We got to go into the school library, choose a book, and write a book review. And just sort of random, I pulled out um, a collection of William McIlvanny stories. Uh, it blew my mind, you know. I'd never seen anything anything like that. The, the Walking Wounded, it was called. Oh, that's one um, of my favourites as well. I, I read that at a young age and it absolutely changed me, yeah. It's amazing, you know, so many books I've read and I, my memory's terrible, you know, and I've got, oh, I can't remember what happened in that. And that, that's, you know, I think came about 35 years ago or something I read it and it's, it's you know, it's still there. And of course he wrote in, in, in Greythnock. Um, but... Um, uh, Lewis Grassic Gaben, uh, he had uh, he, he he invented um, was it Dunkirk in and uh, in, uh, in the latter part of Scott Square. And interestingly, people thought that was um, Dundee, and a lot of people think Dundee's Dundee because because um, it sounds a wee bit like that. Right. But it's just done for for and do an old word for sorrow. That's where I got the the name for, and it's meant to be somewhere sort of west. West Lothian-ish central belt. Strange mouth. I mentioned at one point. Aye, aye, it does. So it's it's around about there. It's somewhere near sort of Bathgate. There's there's a wee patch where I could almost imagine, you know, if you were applying, <laughs> you think, oh, you could knock something up there. Um, but that that I, you know, um, that was um, sort of why I have a have a fictional location. The other thing is that um, most of my life in well, most of my life in Scotland certainly I lived in Edinburgh, um, and Edinburgh is a, a wonderful city to, to write about, but it's a city of, it's a, it's a city of Jekyll and Hyde, you know, there's this the, the defining thing of Edinburgh. I, you had um, Liam McIlvanny on mm -hmm. uh, a wee while back, and he was talking about, um, about Glasgow and how Glasgow's got this duality to him, and he's saying, you know, it goes back to Defoe, and that was really interesting, because I think uh, that's my opinion of Edinburgh, even more so. You know, it's it's the new town and it's the old town, and most of its literature is defined by that um, by that sort of uh, duality. Um, and sometime maybe I'd like love to explore that, but that wasn't sort of suiting my purposes at that time. So um, so Dundee came about, and it's nice having a fictional location because if you need, you suddenly think, oh, I need there to be a steam train. Well, what do you know? There's a steam train. <laughs> But it, it reminded me a way of what Alistair Gray does with Glasgow and Unthinking that you've got something which you think you could probably go and walk around the streets off it, but there's enough difference to make it something fresh and new. Aye, aye, that's what I'd, what I'd, I'd hope that it's just just a wee bit a wee bit uncanny, you know, it's just slightly off. And you were saying it's a dystopian novel, um, but it, one which really does offer hope. Was it enjoyable to write about the end of the world or kind of near the end of the world? Well, I think like in my more despairing moments, as, as I say, there's something that um, that idea of a, of a cataclysmic rupture is, is, I understand why throughout history, uh, oppressed peoples have found that, that faith alluring you know that 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 all this can be wiped away and we can and we can build something new um and and there's echoes of that right through to to to, to recent revolutionary movements you know a famous quote from uh, the spanish anarchist buenaventura 
Victor Ruti that the bourgeois may blast and ruin um, its world before it leaves the stage of history forever, but there's a new world growing in our hearts. Um, that same idea that we're going to wipe everything clear and, um, and start again. Uh, so that, that so, uh, it was very, very enticing. At the same time, a lot of readers say, well, it's a wee bit close to home after COVID, you know, and, and that, um, that moment when I suddenly thought, goodness me, what's going on here? Uh, this is frightening. Yeah. Um, I could see that. I can see how, again, it's, books are often so, uh, readers are so influenced by the time they read the books in. You know, if this had been five years ago, then it would have been a very different reaction to, to reading it now. Aye. Aye, absolutely. Um, I was a, it, was a, it was a strange thing to, at, you know, at the time I, that COVID happened, I thought, you know, I've been working this book, I thought, oh, goodness me, and all that, go off to totally start again. Um, and, and I decided that I was going to make uh, there be, have been a similar pandemic um, effect in this other society, partly because of, of a, you know, I sort of have this, this Marxist idea that there's a determinism to society and that, that things that are sort of technologically related, there's a, they, they will tend to happen regardless of the wee differences in what people do. Mm-hmm. Um, but partly it seemed like it was so important to the, to the ideas of the book that it had to go in. Um, looking back on it, you know, already, you can't even say COVID's gone away, but it's not dominating people's world the way that the way that it was. Um, we, we live in a world where things move very quickly. No, no, absolutely. But uh, the book can uh, suggest that to get to, you know, the, the kind of potential at the end of your book, that a kind of reset, a drastic reset is needed? Is that the kind of thing that you think is the case? I think that just now we've, we've got ourselves into a position where we can imagine any alternative to endless economic growth. Yeah. Um, and I, 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 of course, I'm, I'm not wishing a catastrophe upon the world you know that that that, that would be terrible and, and in reality we all the best will of people i don't think we're really going to go out and dig up the land and um and sort ourselves out um but it's a it's an idea it's a it's a metaphor for making some radical change not just trying to um invent better and better technology that can offset um, what we're doing while allowing us to continue economic growth, but maybe to think, um, do we need more economic growth? You know, you think back in the 19th, what things were like in the 1950s, um, and the increase in wealth between the 1930s uh, and the 1950s. And I think you went back to people in the 1950s and uh, you told them, well, GDP is going to go up whatever it is, 15-fold or whatever, um, from where you are now. when you know, you had full employment and a big house and things and free education and all the rest of it. Uh, and I said, it's going to be this much richer in material terms, but we're just not going to be able to afford our health service. We're not going to be able to afford our pensions. We're not going to be able to afford, afford all sorts of things. I think they just said, that doesn't yeah. compute. How did it get to that stage? Yeah. Yeah, no, absolutely. That's what the book certainly made me uh, think about because in it, you've still got 
these uh, different classes who come together in, in uh, quite spectacular ways. But uh, the system that they begin to adopt is one of exchanging goods and skills and, and you know, that kind of pre-capitalist system, um, which, you know, certainly does kind of make you think in that they all realize the need to change. It's a necessary system in the situation they all find themselves in. Aye, aye. Um... Yeah, and that's the, that's the thing, you know, can we um, can we make a change so long as we can keep this ticking over one way or another? Um, you know, do do we need something something radical to, to force us to change? I, I, I hope not, mm. you know. Yeah. I hope it doesn't get to that point. Well, let's talk a bit about the characters in this, because there's some fantastic characters in the book as well. Um, how to approach this without giving away spoilers you've got well you've got the people in the block of flats and in the the, the chip shop and how they kind of pull together uh, to begin with um that's really where the book begins isn't it that 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 it's the folk who really have nothing that start to kind of pull together aye absolutely and um um i think like um all the characters are they're all very deeply flawed in different ways and they're all they're all aspects of myself you know um, all my many sort of feelings written into different um different different people um but that but i think that makes i hope that makes it um more rewarding as they as they sort of have these various uh, journeys of, of recovery in different senses um, and develop as people um Do you have uh, do you have favourites that you think? Oh yeah, I'd like to. I'd like to because I was talking to a couple of writers recently, and they were saying that when often when they finish their books, the central character they've kind of been so attached to them that they kind of miss them. Now you don't really have a single central character; you've got multiple characters. But are there any that you'd think? Oh, I'd like to kind of write about them again. I didn't kind of enjoy them. I I like Giorgio. He's a he's a, he's a, he, he was fun to write, and he was he, he appeared uh, briefly in my first novel as a as a right. sort of bad guy, so it was nice to um to have a wee bit of, um a wee bit of fun with fun with him. Um, I I liked writing um the two uh, the two uh, student druggies. That, you know, they 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 were a good laugh. Uh, we we Ava, you know, Aye, uh, oh, she's great. I'm awfully sort of fond of her, um, but I, I, it's, it's quite something's writing is quite sort of therapeutic, you know, because these are all, all my sort of uh, all my flaws and weaknesses, um, and you get to sort of imagine solutions for them all to an extent. Um, I end up, you know, there's a, a story of Gustav Flaubert when he wrote Madame Bovary, and he was getting pestered for. Um, a bit of gossip about who Madame Bovary was based on, and so was, who's the real Madame Bovary? Who's this? And eventually, he said, "Madame Bovary, some more." No, it's me. Uh, and maybe that's always the way we are. Your characters that um, they're they're different versions of yourself. Well, that's interesting because you mentioned Thomas Hobbes earlier on, and there's a character called Hobbes, you know, in the book. And um, for those that don't know, Hobbes kind of proffered that. Na the natural state of life is it's nasty, brutish and short. And at the beginning, you can kind of see that, well, this is the way that could possibly go. And then his other idea of the social contract to kind of save us, that begins to happen within the group as well. Were there 
non-fictional influences like Hobbes' theories or other philosophies that, that influenced you? Um, well, definitely like with the, the, the Hobbesian thing, I wanted to do a, you know, Hobbes is writing at the time of the, the English Civil War, and there's amazing things going on um, at that time, like um, you've got the, the, the levellers and the, the, the ranters, and this. you've got Gerard Stanley and his, his diggers, these are folk who, that, that took the common land, you know, un, unplanted land and tried to harvest it. Um, and we're really progressive in terms of their ideas of equality for, for women and all this. And I've always had a beef with Hobbes with that, I, that idea that without yeah. government, we're necessarily um, going to be in this state of savagery. So I wanted to sort of um, satirise that and satirise the, um, the, the survivalist and, and, and prepper mentality, uh, which is often based around a, a, a sort of, obsessive macho thing and, and all these people seem to be want you know the end of the world they can't wait for it and they've, they've got their guns prepared and all this yeah. um, um, and I wanted to have a wee bit of fun with imagining imagining people going full out with the idea of how an apocalypse plays out in the movie but in a town that in many ways stays fairly normal where people um acting fairly uh fairly reasonably so so that was a non-fiction influence the other non-fiction influence that um, is important is a, a, a Rebecca Solnit wrote a book a paradise built in hell uh, extraordinary communities that arise during disaster and she looks at uh, real world responses to um, various disasters it's mostly American stuff but I think the most recent one she looks at is uh, Hurricane Katrina and she contrasts the the popular perception of what's going on um, where like, uh, I don't know if you uh, remember, but all the stories about um, gangs that were murdering and looting and all this, and, and, and people just believed that because that's what they expected. And then when the, the real stories came out, actually people were going around helping each other. And um, it's, she, she argues that it's mainly the state response that introduces violence to the, to the situation and that generally popular responses to disaster are characterised by um, cooperation and, and mutual aid. I don't know if you've seen the film Flint that came out a couple of years ago, but it's about uh, the community in North America, Flint, Michigan, which had its white water basically poisoned. They weren't allowed to use certain water. And it's a similar thing. The, 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 myth, the myths that came out of it compared to what was actually happening with people absolutely coming together to try and fight government, fight the situation. These people were having to wash themselves and their kids in bottled water because the water was so, you know, poisoned uh, that they couldn't do it. Um, it. It's a fantastic film to see, but it's exactly that type of thing. How it's spun nationally compared to what the reality is, is often very, very different. And at the beginning of Disneyland, you can see that change at the beginning, it, you kind of touch on the fears that many people may have, that you would have um, wandering gangs, you know, kind of uh, with no, nobody to look, no, you know, no homes to go to or no times to get to their beds and all that kind of stuff. You've got these survivalists who suddenly, you know, rub their hands together going, I've been waiting for this all my life. All of those things are there. But then quite slowly, I mean, it doesn't happen overnight, but people begin to realize how much they need each other and suggesting that really 
small community rather than kind of any big government is where you're going to find these things working at their best. I, I think so, you know, um, I'm, maybe I'm naive, but I, I, I think that in certainly in small scale interactions, my, my experience is that people are generally very decent, you know, um, not exclusively, of course, you know, people do terrible things, but um, there's something about having a young child, the, the kindness people show to you, yeah. um, the, the, the selflessness with which people will often act. Um, so um, I, I do have a degree of a degree of faith in, um, in in potential. I wouldn't say that I think that you know that that human nature is 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 good because I think we're we're the only nature about humans is our inherent sociality. You know, we're born unable to look after ourselves. We have to be in in communities to to survive. Um, but the notion that we are necessarily egoistic. Um, I didn't think there's very much evidence for that. No, no I would agree. We had um, family illness recently and found exactly the same thing, that, you know, the support and the kindness shown was just uh, incredible. And I, I agree with you. Again, maybe we're both being naive, but that's what I find as well. And I kind of think that's how I'd rather view the world, rather than aye. thinking everyone's going to do you over. Aye. Aye. The only slight worry I have about Disneyland is at one point, it kind of suggests that Robbie Williams' Angels could become a national anthem. <laughs> That's a good tune. I'm being musically snobbish. It is a good tune. You're absolutely right. It's a sing-along tune anyway. I was thinking when we got that, got to that bit, and it's, it's funny, you know, you start thinking about, well, how do people play music these days? Nobody's got a... I mean, I've got all my CDs are up in the loft, right? You know, it's all your... Spotify. So if your internet went down, what would it be playing? And I had this idea that you know she'd dig out this old battery-operated CD player, and and it'd be what were whatever was in it for the last time. And of course, angels. It's again um, that sort of religious theme that um that yeah. No, no, absolutely. Uh, but it, it tickled me because I thought, yeah, I can see a full, you know, Hamden Park or something singing along to that if they if they got going. Definitely. <laughs> God save us all. <laughs> So can you tell us a little bit uh, about your life as a writer? Because you've been doing it for a while, as you suggested. I have. I, 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 I started writing and then I got a job for a, a teaching writing, which is a, a great way to kill your writing. Um, <laughs> uh, and, uh, and also to kill your, your reading to an extent um, in that if your day job is, 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 is reading... Um, people's work all day. Yeah, yeah. You're less inclined to come home and read a novel. So so sort of reading for uh for for pleasure. I, some of some of the stuff that our students do is fantastic and very pleasurable to read. But but I, I did stop um reading you know the, the sort of volume that uh that I used to. Um but this is the this is now my fourth novel. Um they're all very uh they're all very different um the the first ones are sort of a a, a coming of age story, um, like a lot like a lot of first novels. It's very autobiographical. It's a coming of age story about a um, a young Scottish fellow who works in a burger bar, kind of like I used to, and um, uh, all that sort of thing. He gets mixed up with the the, the anti capitalist movement set sort of the end of the nineties. Um, 
and then uh, and then I, I wrote one which was my my PhD. It's called the Deconstruction of Professor Throb, um, and it's a uh, it's a uh, I, I, I wanted to write the PhD was a chance to write something that wasn't necessarily for commercial publication, right. um, and and it's a uh, it's quite I suppose it's quite a difficult book and it um it's quite theoretical. I was really interested in that, the question of free will and determinism, mm -hmm. um, and that's one of the things I've always tried to explore in in my fiction. And it's narrated by a very pompous. Um, PhD student, it's a PhD about a PhD, and it's got all that sort of metafictional um, business going on. Um, and then after that, I tried to write something that's a you know much more of a straightforward sort of um, psychological thriller. And then there's been nearly a ten-year gap, um, uh, so I'm really really happy to get this um, to get this book out in the world. And it's lovely that people are being nice about it. You know, you didn't care how it's going to be received. Yeah. Um, and everybody, in fact, it's a bit of a problem for me because I, you know, I've got a massive chip on my shoulder. So when you start getting nice reviews, it's like, well, maybe they're not all out to get me. Well, exactly, you have to change things. Well, I just think not only um, is it a really well-written book, but it is a very timely book. It really will kind of um, strike a chord with people, whether you meant it or not, at the time that they read it, you know, very timely indeed. I hope so, uh, I hope so. Um, and I hope it's a book that, I hope it's a book that makes people feel a bit better. You know, like um, we do live in, in quite frightening times and there's an awful lot in our culture that encourages us to be afraid of each other. Um, yeah. and, I, and I hope the book in, in some small way can can make us feel a wee bit, a wee bit closer. And I think, you know, when I started reading it, uh, not really knowing what to expect, you kind of get, oh, well, this is quite frightening because some horrible things happen and, you know, horrible things have to happen. And then, as I'm not giving anything away by saying we've talked about it, people begin to work together. It absolutely does lift your spirits and you think, yeah, whatever. Even in the worst of times, Thomas Hobbes, even in the worst of times, it isn't that bad. <laughs> I, I, it's, I mean, it's quite hard to do because... Um, I, I, I was reading Kim, Kim, Stanley, Kim Stanley Robinson saying that um, novels are about what goes wrong. And so it's really difficult to write a, a, a utopian novel or, you know, uh, it's boring. You know, everybody's just sort of, uh, you know, I, I mentioned uh, Lord of the Flies earlier on. Imagine if the plot was they all landed on the island and they Aye. just collected fruit and played games for a few weeks and then someone yeah. picked them up, you know? Yeah, yeah, they all got on well together, supported each other and then went home. That's not really it. You're right. You're absolutely right. No, a couple meet and fall in love. That's not a story. A couple meet and fall in love, but their families hate each other. That's mm -hmm. a story. A couple meet and fall in love. She's already married. That's a story. You know, there has to be a, there has to be a problem. Um, so, so a lot of the novel is, I, you know, it is uh, what, what you'd expect of a disaster novel. It is about competition for resources. It's about um, old rivalries and violence and, and what have you. But, um, but I, the, the, there is that turning point. And again, this may be, uh, if you don't want to give away kind of any secrets here, but you've got an afterword at the end, which made me think, because it alludes that some of the characters may be real people in the real world. Was that something that you're just kind of playing us with, or was it uh, a you know something that you actually went to say? Do these people exist? Are there people like this in the real world? 
it's a wee bit of both, but I wouldn't like to say because they might, they wouldn't recognise each other and themselves and probably wouldn't want to. Uh, but it can it really fits with everything else right from the beginning, you know, from you saying hearing the voice and all this to this kind of going, how much of that was real? Is there any of it real? Which is a really nice kind of twist at the end. Thank you. Um, can you tell us what's next for you? Or is it just all about Disneyland at the moment? It's just all about Disneyland, and um, most of my 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 time, I'm mainly a, a, a stay-at-home dad just now. So I'm just uh, with my wee with my wee boy. Um, but incidentally, that's a, that's been a he's, he's a huge influence on the on the book, like and just the experience of becoming a um, becoming a father. Like the 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 language it's it's um, it's written in is. Um, that's uh, sort of sort of influenced by Scotch, you know. There's um, there's, there's Scot sort of Scottish phrases, and and part of that comes from teaching them words, and you've got a decision to make, right? And normally, I just use whatever is the word that somebody's expecting to hear. So um, most of the time, I don't know what I say it's your ears because that's what people you know expect them to hear. But then when it's somebody who's never heard the word, well, what do you go for? Um, so I found myself saying to them, well, those are your lugs. And, um, um, and, um, and it sort of surprised me a bit that the language that the book started um, started to come out in. Yeah, because it's, it's got, as you say, it's got kind of Scots phrases throughout. Um, but I would say still mainly kind of English in terms of it being written. And that, that's interesting to hear that you're, where, you, where you are and who you're with, with your son, that you're thinking about that way. How do I communicate? It's a simple kind of communication. Oh, and you communicate it very well because it's very kind of easy to read in that way. But uh, yeah, that's, that's interesting in itself, that kind of dislocation you're saying being away from Scotland for so long. You probably have to think about it more than maybe other writers do. Absolutely. It's another thing that I noticed that um, we'll often be out in the park and we'll get talking to, to strangers and, and uh, now and again we'll get talking to somebody that's um, also originally from Scotland. There's a lot of people that have been here that have been, you know, gone a long time. Um, and it's funny, I notice how our voices will change mm -hmm. in the course of the conversation. So it's a sort of, oh, what a charming little boy. I do like his hat. Why, thank you very much. See, is that a slight Scottish little type of text there? Oh, it is that. I, oh, all right, we're from Glasgow ourselves. Is that right? And before you get it, you're spraffing away about, you know. Um, and, um, and it's nice, you know. It's yeah. nice to um, it's nice to have some, some, some memory of where, where you come from. Um, and there's sometimes this idea that you'd only use dialect in speech or writing if it's the only way you can express yourself mm -hmm. um, and that's not necessarily the case at all that's could awesome. be that um, you know I, I can do my, my, my lecturing voice you know, and Queen's absolutely fine but it's it could be that we, we like it mm -hmm. um, and I was listening to um, oh his, his name's um, Gone from the yard on the, uh, the the guy who's talking about translating poetry into into Chinese. Oh yeah, uh, oh, yes, right. Uh -huh. yeah. Brian yeah. Holton, I think. Brian Holton, that's it. Brian Holton, uh, and he was very yeah talking about uh, the the um, talking about the the Scots language, um, 
Annie said it had a had a, had a muscularity, uh, and you know that struck me. And and as I'll say, a rhythm and it lends itself to to humour, and it's just um, and it's beautiful. Yeah. Um, and uh, and yeah, it does. I mean, it, I think we're beyond the the point of arguing that it shouldn't be used or it doesn't use. That boat has sailed. It it works. We've got so many great writers that write in Scots, write parts of Scots, whatever dialect, however you want to call it. it doesn't really matter what you call it. It's there on the page, and if it works, it works. As with most writing. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to have a chat with me. I really do appreciate it. It's an absolute pleasure. Thank you. Thank you very much for speaking to me. And thank you so much for, re for reading the book. It's, uh, I'm really very grateful. Well, it's my pleasure. And we'll be back soon with someone completely different. Mm -hmm.